This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional. I'm your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast was, like most creative processes, birthed from a combination of a several cups of coffees and honestly, even more questions posed by a series of impassioned graduate students that I've had the pleasure of supervising over the last several years. First Bite's mission to answer those questions that we've all had, but we've either been too afraid to ask or we didn't have the subject matter expert saved to our own personal speed dials. So, do you too have more questions and answers when it comes to treating your medically complex and fragile pediatric patients? Are you unsure if the signs and symptoms that you're observing are indicative of an allergy, maybe an underlying GI issues, or could they possibly be neurologically driven? How many questions do you really have for that registered dietitian regarding the formulas prescribed and the flow rate through that patient's G-tube? Have you ever been consulted for a quote-unquote difficult latch only to find out that the mother is exclusively breastfeeding, but you've never nursed a little one or worked with the breastfed patient before? And what about functional communication? Are you so over flashcards, but you need advice on how to get started with core vocabulary with a non-speech-generating device or how to find the right fit for a speech-generating device? Do you have additional worries about the basic day-to-day running and documentation of your private practice? How do you go about obtaining referrals or even documenting that note so that the insurance company deems it medically necessary? If you answered yes, well, then come join me, Michelle Dawson, for this dynamic podcast presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Who am I, you ask? Well, I'm a self-described SLP geek with, as my family says, a touch of the ADD and ADHD. I have a passion for serving the least of these, namely the most complex and involved pediatric patients in their natural environment through my private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in the Columbia, South Carolina metro area. I also have had the pleasure, and currently still am, traveling the country where I lecture on best practices for pediatric dysphagia and functional language acquisition delivered through an early intervention natural environment model. Are you still intrigued? Then come join me as I interview some amazing folks. And don't forget that you can submit questions for a Q&A or interview request topics to me via email at firstbite at speechtherapypd.com or on our Facebook page. And also check out our website, drop a review, subscribe to obtain those coveted ASHA CEUs. All right, folks, let's get right to it. Welcome back to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional Resources for the Pediatric Clinician. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. The topic of today falls in both the fun, uh, fun and functional category, especially fun if you know who our guest speaker is today. We have joining with us the one and only Ms. Diane Postman from Yorktown, Virginia. 
And Diane holds a very dear and very special place in my heart as she was my first professional mentor in the world of early childhood special education. Not only did she teach me how to use a laminator without accidentally getting sucked in, um, true story, almost died, um, but she also single-handedly equipped me for working with special needs preschoolers from both a holistic perspective, as well as focusing on how those little ones can access their ADLs or activities of daily living. Um, I, I learned more from her than any textbook, any course, or pretty much any person since I met her. Um, she is also a contributing factor as to why I'm such a busybody. Um, and uh, her hat wearing to do list makes my normal Monday through Friday look tame by comparison. So, all right, Diane, lay it on me. What are you up to in your, and I'm air quoting here, retirement these days? Well, let's see. retirement's a funny word, but, but let me go back a little bit. Let me tell you sort of how I got to where I am. All right. Um, I am the daughter of two teachers. My mother was a teacher. My father was a teacher. So it was inevitable that I become a teacher. And I went to Radford University in Virginia um, to become a teacher. And actually, I spent my freshman year of college as an undecided major because my father was afraid that the only thing I knew in the world was teaching. And he was afraid that I was going into teaching because I didn't know other options. Mm -hmm. So I promised him that I would spend freshman year exploring other things. So I took all kinds of weird stuff in freshman year, came home that summer and said, now can I be a teacher? And my dad said, okay. So the rest, as they say, is history. And I got a degree in early childhood education. Uh, years later, um, after I was married and also a parent, I decided to get a master's degree in special education. And I went to Old Dominion University in Virginia. Woo and so did our host. In <laughs> fact, our claim to fame with each other is that we actually walked the graduation stage on the same day, but we did not know each other at the time. <laughs> nope. But that's, cool. that's, that's our first experience together was graduating from ODU. Uh, anyway, I spent 31 years in the classroom in public education. I'm very proud of that. Um, I taught kindergarten. I taught a K-1 combination. Mm -hmm. I taught kindergartners who were deemed at risk. I taught early childhood special education in a reverse inclusion model. And I worked with Michelle at that time. And I taught second and third grade science. And if you're trying to figure out how that fits in, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, but right now I retired in uh, 2010 and I decided to pursue other things. And I have started my own business, which is called Training Wheels Consulting. Um, I do have a website, trainingwheelsconsulting.com. And I provide training for teachers. I do workshops for classroom teachers in public schools, private schools, church programs, YMCA programs, Head Starts, you name it. Um, I also wear two other hats. I work for Child Development Resources, which is in Tawana, Virginia, and they provide um, infant care programs for children who have special needs, but they also have a curriculum in early literacy, and it's called 123 Read, and I serve as an early literacy coach for that program, and I go into classrooms and provide coaching to help teachers to use literature. Um, and my third hat is I do child development associates verification visits for people who are working towards their child associate child development associate 
certification. Okay. So that's what I'm doing. And um, folks, uh, honest to goodness, the lady before we got started, her and I were reminiscing and giggling and she pulled a giant cardboard box out of her closet and she has all the hats. I finally remember wearing the frog one and um, I definitely have a picture of you wearing the pink sunflower one. Yes, yes. <laughs> Not only does she w- literally wear a lot of hats, but figuratively as well. <laughs> okay. So um, I got to be honest, I, when I went to school and um, I'm um, showing my, um, my age here, despite what Miss Jess may do in her magical beautician salon to color my grays, um, uh, we did not really embrace literacy in the undergrad or grad programs that I went to as being within the scope of practice of a speech path. So that was, you know, our, our dear friend, Little Bit, that was her, um, it was a colleague that we worked with, everybody called her Little Bit. Um, she was the reading intervention specialist. She'd gone to William and Mary, had her MBA or her master's in uh, emergent literacy, and she was the reading guru. So my first exposure to emergent literacy in an early childhood special education classroom was when we pushed in together and you kind of crash course me on how to start that concept and start laying out words. But um, you also, and for those of you that don't know it, you can work in Virginia. They have a, a setup that if you work in the public schools as a speech teacher, you can also be pursuing your master's. So for those of you that are out there that are SLPAs or SLTs, you're aware of this model. But um, I was going to grad school and learning while I was working full time there at our little rural um, school district down by the um, river. So you you crash course me as to what a push in model and emergent literacy looked like in your classroom. But explain your ideal setup to those of us that haven't seen it and don't know what it looks like. Well, let me give you just a teeny bit of background on me and push in because back in the eighties and don't tell me you weren't born back then. I don't even want to hear it. We're all right. (laughs) (laughs) Barely. Well, back in your infancy, um, my school principal took me and our SLP to Hampton University, and Hampton University had a laboratory school on campus, and they were doing push-in, and it was relatively new at that time, certainly something I had never heard of, certainly never heard of it in college, and so we went, and we looked through the two-way mirrors, and we observed this push-in model. I was enthralled, completely enthralled. I was absolutely gaga, and after we got to observe, we got to go into the classroom, talk to the SLP, talk to the teachers, and talk about how great it was, and I was like so excited because I wanted to do this. Unfortunately, the the SLP that I was working with at the time was not so gaga. And I understand that. I mean, I can now look back and and look at her point of view and realize that that some people may feel more comfortable in their clinical setting, sort of having a little more control, uh, having the kids more focused, perhaps that type of thing. So I understand that people might be reticent about this. However, to me, it's the only way to go. I mean, I just absolutely love it. And my first opportunity to work at, with Push-In was so successful, and I love it. Um, so why? Um, the SLP just 
becomes a part of the room. And so rather than pulling kids out into a clinical setting, it's in their natural setting. And I believe very strongly that children learn best in their natural setting. And their natural settings, of course, are the home, perhaps their church, their their neighborhood, and their classroom. So that's where they're, they're most at home. So I feel it's really important to have the SLP part of that. And when the SLP is in there, they can help with things like circle time and, and centers time and those kinds of things, things that children are doing every single day. And so I loved having somebody there to support the language of children with me and also to guide me. I felt like it was really a win-win between me and the SLP because I learned from the SLP because I would see methods that she was using and I was able to imitate those when she was not in the room. But she was also able to see the settings that the child was in and where the child was successful, but also maybe where they were struggling and where she could kind of fit in and help to advise that child and work with that child again in the natural setting. So I, I really thought that we both learned from each other. I thought it was really beneficial. Um, one of the things that I did in my classroom was a sort of a rotation time with the SLP where we had different activities going on and my my paraprofessional would take a group of kids, the SLP would take a group of kids and I would take a group. And think about that, it's a small group of kids to begin with. So when you each divide them into thirds, you've only got two or three kids at the most. So that the SLP got to spend some really concentrated time with her speech students, but also with those language role models because we were doing a reverse inclusion. So I loved that we could do that and we could rotate the kids. We could compare notes on how they, they were doing. We were all working on eliciting language from children, getting them to request to make their wants and needs known. We were working on core vocabulary together. We would work on, on thematic activities and sort of embedding that core vocabulary into the activities. We worked on WH questions. I mean, you name it. But all three of us and the SLP would sort of guide us to say, here's some things that I think we need to focus on with my speech students. And we would all do those things together. So it, I felt like it was really beneficial all around and a lot of fun. Okay. All right. So what that looked like on like a Tuesday morning at that particular elementary school, which um, I will always hold those memories near, um, we would go in and you would have a group of like three kids, um, uh, your para pro who was awesome, have a group of like three kids. And then I would have a group of three kids or however many were there. And we would always try to pair the typically developing um, kid with um, as a zone of scaffolding for the child with the language delay. Exactly. And so that way there was a strong language model in each group and then a child that was either deemed at risk with a developmental delay or identified with a speech language impairment. Um, and it was kind of set that way as they went through each session. And then the tabletop activities that we did, they would incorporate like a fine motor skill or a gross motor skill. So the kids would be like cutting, coloring, gluing, but it was academic as well. You know, you're working on um, colors and numbers, counting, animal noises, environmental sounds. But, and when you talked about the core vocab and your thematic vocab from a speech pathology perspective, folks, we were working um, and PRC has a great resource. The um, PRC core vocab, it's a PDF. You can Google it. It's the first 100 words. It blends beautifully those first 100 words with the Dolch 
Um, Diane, am I saying that right? Dolch, Dolch, yep. Dolch words Dolch. list, sight word list. Yes. Yes. It's the 300 words. Um, and so those words overlap beautifully. And then from an SLP perspective, um, Diane's thematic vocabulary, um, whether it be like uh, back to school, fall craft activity or Valentine's Day with hearts, those were our fringe vocab for the day. So we are doing core, but we're also adding in the um, uh, world word knowledge, the semantics for that fringe vocab. And oh my gosh, it was joyful and it was fun and it was fluid. And we all were silly and laughing and the kids learned best. And there's resources, folks, there's resources on ASHA. ASHA has position statements on best practice for early intervention and for um, like push-in inclusion in the classrooms. And you can access that on the ASHA practice portal. So if you need um, supports to advocate for why you want that model in your classroom, just get on the ASHA practice portal, navigate it. Um, If you need help, shoot an email, gladly send you the link. Actually, you know what, Diane? I think I'll put those links up on our on my website. Um, yeah, that'd be great. I'll put the links up and attach them to this podcast. That way people can troubleshoot it. Um, but that way you have it there. But it, the kids that we co-treated this way, their language grew much faster than the ones that didn't get that push-in model, especially with the typically developing um, peers. Well, yeah, and if I can interject there, I go back to the fact that it's a natural environment. I just yes, I, I think that cannot be overstated. And one of the things that I wanted to mention as you were talking was thinking about the materials that we were using. You know, we were using materials that are typically found in a classroom. Again, when you have the children in a clinical setting, you have your own SLP materials, but they may not be the same materials that they're seeing in their classroom environment. And so using those same materials, I think, really helps because then they're seeing them every day. And the next day when the SLP might not be there, but we have those same materials, I can replicate basically what we were doing with the SLP in the room. I also think, you know, as you mentioned, having those good peer models was so critical Mm -hmm. and they worked really well together. A lot of times what they learned, they didn't learn from you or from me. They learned from the kids sitting next to them. And we were were just cueing it and fostering that and then made it happen. And it was so successful. The other thing I wanted to throw out there was just the whole idea that this is a big bugaboo with me these days is screen time. And I feel strongly about how screen time is having a negative effect on children's social interactions, children's language development, and so on. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of families are going out there and using a lot of programs with children. And there are some terrific programs out there, but there is no language development when you are looking at a screen. And so I feel like what we do in the classroom is so critical because the kids are getting a lot of screen time, perhaps at home. And so in the classroom, we want to give them a lot of interfacing time with peers and with adults and helping them to develop their language and have modeling for that. Okay, so two thoughts. One, that's a perfect segue into my next question for you. And two, we're not talking about screen time for an AAC device here. We're talking about giving them a- Oh, no, absolutely not, yes. Cell phone or iPad just to plop down on. I mean, I know in our house, we have the rule, like you only get this much screen time at the end of the day. You know, the boys can play on their iPad for like five or 10 minutes or, you know, on mommy's cell phone for five or 10 minutes because I have a fun little, I mean, come on guys. Like I'm a mom. Like sometimes I just want to have a glass of mommy juice and let the babies chill for like 10 minutes. Oh yeah. And those things are great. And and, and I'm glad the kids are learning to use, you know, use computers and use... But it's the volume that 
uh, America is consuming the screen time in. And please, please, folks, you can get in. Um, there was an article in the ASHA Leader. Um, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics has position statements on screen time. And they're actually finding that it changes the um, functionality of the frontal lobe and the occipital lobe. And it is akin to the changes are akin to cocaine addiction. Um, yes what it's actually doing to the brain structurally. That's how serious this is. Cocaine is bad. So is screen time. So. Well, and I will add to that part of the problem with screen time is that the images are flashing so quickly. And so children are no longer able to focus on something that moves more slowly, like reading a storybook, that type of thing. Or looking at another human's face and, you know, that that can be slow. We can, you know, we, yes. we process. Yes. Okay. All right. So then, Back to my question, um, uh, how, okay, when we were working together, um, I was, um, (laughs) I was a novice at AAC and AT, and I definitely remember going up to the AAC, AT at um, the SPED office and like opening the one dusty cabinet door. (laughs) You know which door I'm talking about. I know the cabinet, yes. And and, like, it was basically filled with Big Mac switches. And I was like, oh, this looks so fun. And so I checked all these things out because they were fun and I was going to play with these and we were going to learn all the words and like, 15 years later, I'm like, oh, my God, I was such an idiot. And those poor kids, how did they ever survive me? And so I can only imagine the turmoil you must have felt when here comes the speech teacher. Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) But, but, I mean, (laughs) thank goodness I have met um, mentors to shape and enhance the AAC in my world along the way. But... um, and I, I'm, I'm going to admit it. I was the queen of PECS, the picture exchange communication system, when I first came out the gate. I mean, I was all about laminating a hundred different nouns and then velcroing them everywhere. And you know, I didn't know the importance of what we just talked about—a uh, narrative storyboard. I didn't know the importance of that core vocab and that kids, in fact, actually talk in verbs and in prepositions: up, down, in, off. Um, want, go, eat. I, I just assumed everybody did pecs and isolation and that was the way of the world. And then you'd throw in a Big Mac and yay, job well done. But um, between between you and Dr. Carol, I have grown immensely. So um, how did you explain for folks how you painstakingly encouraged me and helped me grow to use AAC or AT in your classroom? Well, you are totally over-exaggerating your, your, your ineptitude because you were great. Don't, don't, don't even say that. Don't even go there. Well, to me, what I saw AT devices to be would be a way to encourage kids to actually talk. Yes. That's what, I didn't want them to talk for them. I wanted them to get them to talk. Yes. So what I liked them for was, for example, the reluctant talker, the kid who looks at you and he's capable of saying something, but he's reluctant. And I think part of the reason he's reluctant is because as adults, we put kids on a stage and we are staring at them like this. Nobody can see my eyeballs, but you can. <laughs> the beautiful but I'm staring eyeballs. at you. I love your glasses. 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I think that sometimes children feel very uncomfortable because we are asking them to speak. It's not their strongest suit, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And we're sitting there waiting with anticipation and looking at them. And these poor kids are like, oh, and I think that they don't perform sometimes because of that. And I found that sometimes these AT devices distracted their attention from the fact that, yes, I am waiting for a response and I do want you to talk and I am cueing you and I am trying to get you to speak in sentences or whatever you're capable of. It might be two word phrases. I don't know. But I am trying to get you to do that. And I found that the AT device was a motivator and it it distracted the adult, excuse me, the child from the adult staring at them. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I like to use it for was the reluctant child who didn't want to talk, the shy child who was uncomfortable and the child who was very limited verbally. And so they needed a little bit of prompting. But what I was looking for in that exchange was not the child pushing the button and then sitting back and letting the, the machine talk, but they talked and then they got to push the button. So the talking for me, I wanted to come first. I wanted them to put some words together first and then that was their reward. And that's that's the way that I found it to be effective. And you're talking about the PEX pictures. The, a million PEX pictures, are, I did not find helpful either. I mean, yeah. that just, you know, again, I like to use them just as a cue, basically, to get them to speak. And that, and I use them a lot for choices. And so they would look at their choices, one, two, however many I wanted to put out for them. And then they would have to speak in order to tell me which choice they wanted. They couldn't just point and grunt. I wanted them to actually put some words together. Okay, so I distinctly remember doing um, breakfast with you guys on Wednesday morning. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, it was Wednesday, wasn't it? Wednesday morning? Uh, it could be. Your, your yeah. memory's better than mine. <laughs> yeah, I, I distinctly remember doing breakfast with you guys every Wednesday morning. And I remember one little girl had, um, if I ever gave birth to a daughter, that would have been her. Um, she had, she would stare a body down and give you the, I mean, that look and her little eyebrow could just go up and she was not going to talk and she was not going to ask and you could not make her. Um, and I've all, I still wonder this to this day, was it truly a significant expressive language delay or was it just sheer ornery? <laughs> Oh, yeah, she was stubborn. Oh, yeah, for sure. Stubborn. Well, and again, I go back to feeling on stage, you know, I mean, as you yes. know, with my, let me just explain to the audience, but as you know, what we did for breakfast is yes. breakfast was her family style. And yes. so the cereal, the toast, the milk, the, the straws, the napkins, everything was in front of me and I hoarded it. Yes. And if you wanted something, you asked for it. Now, before anybody panics and thinks that I starve my children to death, I did not do that. They all ate. (laughs) However, if you wanted to eat, you had to tell me what you wanted. And and each child had their own way of communicating. So some children would be expected to say, I want cereal, please, an entire sentence. Mm -hmm. Some of them would say cereal or cereal, please. And some of them would say, and it wouldn't really sound like cereal exactly, but you and I knew what they were saying. And all of those things were acceptable depending on the ability of the child. But yes, this little one, yeah. Well, do you remember the little one that would not order breakfast and I got the bear to order breakfast? Yes, I, I, I remember um, you took, I think it was a PLS three at the time, the test kit, the purple bear. Um, and you got the purple bear to order the, yes. And that was how that kid, you language modeled on with that teddy bear. And in that little high pitched voice. And then the kid came back like what, like a week later and then or like two days later. And he got the bear and got the bear to ask. 
And then in the same voice. Yeah. He imitated my voice. So he, yes. I went, I want cereal, please. And he did the same thing because he thought it was hysterically funny. But this, I have to get, give some background on this. This is following weeks of trying to get this kid to talk and using everything at my disposal and, and other than standing on my head. And he would not order breakfast. And I would eventually feed him every day, of course, but he wouldn't order breakfast. But that day with that bear, he thought it was funny. And he started and he started bringing the bear to breakfast. He did. He brought the bear to breakfast for maybe a week. And then the bear stopped coming and the child came by himself and actually ordered breakfast. (laughs) Yay. You have to be creative, but you use the tools in the natural environments. You did not bring a random bag of stuff in order to make this happen. Okay, but that but that little girl and I, I remember all her little pigtails. Uh, in retrospect, I feel like that would have been the perfect, um, you know, you, I remember you making the, the storyline, the, I want to eat. And then, so that she would point to the, I want to eat. Yes. And then you had your fringe vocab. You had y'all Diane is the only woman I have ever seen use a, um, what are those a fanny packs? And you would have a fanny pack with, oh, yeah. Things of the fringe vocab for that activity in there and you would rotate it out so they had she had her core vocab in front of her that she could point to and then you'd rotate out the fringe vocab according to whatever the breakfast was you functionally blended two different forms of low tech but you didn't focus and get hung up on the nouns you you did the it was when I walked into the assistive technology office in South Carolina and I saw a shirt with um, printed pictures on the side in sentences on both sleeves and across the front. So that way the teacher could just point. I was like, oh, my God, I can guarantee Diane has one of these. <laughs> oh, that would be great. I would, hey, I would love one of those. Yeah, well, you remember I had the apron with the Velcro on it, too. Yes. Yes. It was awesome. And apron, by the way, aprons, you go to Home Depot and Lowe's and you beg and they give you child size aprons and you put yes. tempo loop fabric on them. And then you have the Velcro and you have the little pictures and you can sequence your little sentences and your little stories. And yes, they get, and, and again, it will get them to speak in a sentence because they're pulling off not just nouns but verbs as well so they're creating what they want to say yes and, and storyboards. Well, she honest to goodness had an orange home depot apron like i, I, I did ran, yeah <laughs> i did i still um, have it <laughs> oh, that's awesome I, I still have my elephant ears from when we did um oh elephants and we put the sh- we made paper bag um feet remember they had the giant yes. feet yes and we I, walked I, down I, the I, hall and we and we had socks for noses for the yes. trunks oh my god <laughs> That was so much fun. Uh, Okay. All right. So, but with all this vocab, when we're talking about AAC devices, that was those vocabs, you always made sure the printed word was on there. And that was my exposure to putting literacy in. Because in Michelle land, in naive little Michelle land, where I didn't know SLPs are supposed to do reading. Guys, don't judge. I did not know SLPs are supposed to do reading. It's hey, I didn't know that either. We weren't taught that way. No, I wasn't either. I mean, I'm old. No, now, no. It's, now it's one of the big nine. And I'm like, wait, what? That's a thing? Okay. But that was like a foreign concept to me to see the printed word. Like for kids, I'm like, there's no way these kids can read. They're like three. You're, I'm worried about like 
them not vomiting on me or <laughs> I, I remember one little boy every fire alarm he would hold my hand and use my arm as a tissue those were yeah, my concerns at a naive 23 year old also why would I ever think I could wear dry clean only clothes to work in an elementary school oh, what were you thinking girl I, like, come on. <laughs> I, I look cute I look cute covered in snot but yes um, but that being said, all right, so talk to me because this is this is your baby. You you and you I mean, you even came down for our convention in February to talk about emergent literacy for yeah. SLPs. And I mean, everybody loved you because you make it not scary and then you make it fun. So yeah. But <laughs> I try. How, how how can we 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 need takeaways like in from the speech pathology perspective, like most days, I feel like I'm drowning. I've got like 20 to 25 kids on caseload. I've got a wait list when I'm doing home health and I'm running in and out of their houses. I mean, sometimes they don't have anything. Um, and then, you know, when you're running a caseload of 60 to 72 kids in the early classroom, like enlighten us, make us better. Okay. Um, well, I'm just going to hit some high points here um, because obviously we did do this at the at the Skisha conference and it was three hours. <laughs> but let's let's go let's go to abbreviated version here. Um, couple things. I'll mention taking dictation, um, letting kids dictate about what they did at home or what they did yesterday on the weekend or what they or an art project that they've done and they want to tell you about it. Great way to get kids to talk. Okay. So describe. What do you mean dictation? Like if okay. there's correct, the, if when we did circle time, you had a giant white paper thing and you wrote what they said, correct? Correct. Dictation. Yes. And you can do it on chart paper, but you can also do it sitting right next to a child, but writing down their words so that they're seeing that what comes out of their mouth can go on paper. And that's, that's a really, well, it's powerful. I mean, kids, it's a real aha moment for a child. If you write down and they say, I went to Pizza Hut and you write that down as they see it. They're connecting the word with the letters that you're writing. You can mention the letters. So as you write pizza, you can write, say, oh, here's a letter P and oh, what does P say? And you can work on your sounds so you can make that p -p -p sound and they can yeah. hear it. Um, when you're writing it, they're seeing the words go down, they're seeing the letters and they're connecting it to their oral speech. Now a tip, if you're taking dictation for young children, do it so that they can either see it directly in front of them or so that you're beside them. Don't sit across the table because then the writing is upside down. The other things you, right? Ah, <laughs> the other thing yes. you don't want to do is you don't want to write the words the way that you and I would write as an adult. When we're writing as an adult, there's a tiny little space between each word, correct? Yeah. But when you're writing for a child, you want a big honking space between words because you want them to get the concept of words. This is known as cow, concept of words, C-O-W. Mm -hmm. And when you want them to recognize that this right here says I, and then there's this big space and my teacher or my SLP moved her finger and now she's pointing to another word and that one says went and then her finger moves again to two and then to pizza and then to hut. And those spaces help them to see that each one of those units is a separate word. Does that make sense? Yes. And I'm just thinking that when I'm my five-year-old and I are doing, he draws pictures and then app and like in a little book. And then afterwards, like I write out, like he tells me about like whatever the purple monster did. And I write, I'm thinking, Oh, I need to, I need to do that for my five-year-old. 
Yeah, big spaces, big, big spaces, spaces, because that that helps the child to see the spaces between the words. And while I'm I'm on the subject of Pizza Hut, and I don't know why Pizza Hut popped into my head today, except I'm hungry. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking I remember a field trip there. <laughs> oh, we did. We went and made pizzas, didn't we? Wasn't that, that was fun? That was fun. But um, but speaking of that, I just want to throw out the fact that when we're talking about sounds, and a lot of teachers don't know this, so as an SLP, this is something that they, that you may want to mention to classroom teachers gently, of course, but mention a classroom teacher might go pa 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 for the P sound in Pizza Hut. Uh And we want to let those teachers know that we should not be attaching that schwa sound to the consonant. Yay, right? We don't want to do that. So the P sound is actually very quiet. It's a breath sound. It's very quiet. And I think that a lot of times people do that so that the, the child can hear it better. But I always go to teachers and say, let them see your mouth, make the sound, tell them that you're blowing air, whatever you need to do so that they understand that. But they do add that schwa sound. Mm -hmm. And as a former kindergarten teacher, I can tell you that that's a big no-no when it comes to blending words. Because when children start blending the sounds of letters to make a word, if the word happens to be um, bus, pat, let's uh, let's do pat, pat, for example, and they go pa, a, ta. Pa-a-ta, pa-a-ta. What is that? Nothing. But if they go at, if they make the sounds correctly, they can blend them together. So do, as as an SLP, if you see a teacher doing that, do teach them about that because a lot of teachers don't know. But remember, build a bridge, folks. So when you talk with them, don't yell at them. But no, gently, gently. Gently, gently encourage corrections. Yeah. But that that awareness is really, really important. Okay. Okay. Yes. Um, Okay. so what else? Um, Rhyming words are great for early literacy, um, because basically what you want to do, and this is this is how I think it probably connects a little bit with what you're doing as an SLP, is that you want to train the child's ear and the ear has to be trained before they're doing anything in print in terms of recognizing letter sounds and rhyming words and those type of things. You want them to actually be able to hear it first. So. When you're training the ear, you're letting them listen to environmental sounds and Mm -hmm. and identify them. You're letting them listen to rhyming pairs of words and hearing that they sound the same. And I like to do it with a little bit of a sing-songy sound to it. Cat, bat, cat, bat. So they start to hear that it sounds similar. But that's the ear. Nothing written on paper. They're hearing it. I want them to hear those beginning sounds. And so I want to make them with them and they hear the sound. And so we talk about, oh, let's make the p sound. And what sound did you hear at the beginning of cat? Oh, I heard a k sound at the beginning of cat. All sounds, no letters yet. Once they've trained the ear, then you can start bringing out actual letters and letting them connect those sounds to those letters. But that's really important to do ear training. And to me, that's how it might connect with an SLP. And again, you guys have so much on your plates, but you're working on sounds. So to me, those two might go hand in hand in that way. Does that make sense? Yes. And auditory discrimination is huge. I mean, I distinctly remember a very sweet set of redheads that were not twins, but they were um, my little redheads back there at our school. And um, they were my W for our kids. But I couldn't expect them to actually correctly produce a W or an R until, or correctly produce the R until they could actually hear the difference in the words. Yes. And so I remember spending so many sessions at the beginning, just, 
you know, I would have them turn around so they couldn't see my lips or, I mean, I could cover my mouth, but you know, they were ornery little ones and they would cheat. <laughs> no, so I'd have them turn around. No. All right. Wed red. And you know, get them to discriminate, but exactly. That, that's huge. And let's be honest. A lot of the kids that we're treating and that we're working with probably have a past medical history of um, prematurity, um, chronic otitis media that has Definitely. probably resulted in like otitis um, or conductive hearing loss um, that may or may not have been diagnosed yet. And how much fluid do they carry around in their ears? So they're going to need encouragement. Guys, don't forget our colleagues, the audiologists have those wonderful things and those wonderful assessments that we can refer them to. So find a good pediatric audiologist and make sure you're making referrals out for these kids because some of these um, speech patterns and um, auditory discrimination deficits, we can tie directly back in there. Also on that note, some of these kids, when we see them fronting their sounds, um, are holding, you know, instead of doing a k or g, they're doing a t or duh. Um, get in there and do your oral mech. What do their palatine tonsils look like? Um, are they obligatory mouth breathers? Do they have hypertrophy of their adenoids? Get them into a good pediatric ENT. Y'all, even my own three-year-old bear, when he had, um, he was a delayed talker, couldn't hear for 18 months because of conductive hearing loss, complications from their pregnancy, uh, finally got his ears worked out after a couple surgeries, um, fronted all of his sounds, couldn't discriminate, couldn't do any of the rhyming, just like what you're describing, went into my favorite ENT, walked out his tonsils and his adenoids in December, and within two weeks, he could bake all of his back sounds. Wow. Two weeks post-surgery. And I mean, we spent a lot of money on therapy and I roped some really good friends and therapists into doing the therapy, but he needed surgery to actually correctly hold his articulators because he couldn't. It, it was, it was pretty phenomenal. Um, geeky fact, his palatine tonsils were so big posteriorly, they pushed his epiglottis into the posterior pharyngeal wall. And we had no way of knowing that until. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Also explains why he was my vomitor. <laughs> But you know what's interesting about this and listening to you talk about your own son is I had a similar situation with my son. My son was was language impaired as a young child. He had articulation errors, but also had language delays. And we had to fight the school system to get him speech therapy. And when he got therapy, I got permission from the therapist to come in and observe because as a mom, I had not been tra trained with all of this. In, in my schooling. And I wanted to learn more about it because I figured not only can I help my own son, but I can also help students in my classroom if I know more about how to work with these things. And so she allowed me to observe the therapy. Now, here's the funny part, and please don't laugh, but you will, is the agreement was that I would sit in the corner and not talk. Oh my God, stop. There's no freaking way. <laughs> uh, no. Well, I would actually, I was very well behaved. You, you would be, you would be proud of me. I was very well behaved, but you know, that's what you do as a mom. A lot of times, you know, you get your child the help that they need, but you learn things yeah. yourself. You know, you see things and you learn things that you never knew before. That was actually my start in learning about language development and working on that with my students. It made me a better teacher because I learned how to help my own son. That um, all of their yep. surgeries and everything he's gone through has made me a better SLP and Absolutely. patient mom. But that's, but see, that's what, that's why I wanted to pick your brain on this because you, you get it as a mom, but you, 
all of this has come from a place of love. And it's very clear and evident that you love, you love what you do. I do. And, and it, that has always stuck with me and will always stick with me and why I wanted to, I mean, yes, you're subject matter expert on those things. And yes, you're, I mean, you, you know it, but you know it, but you do it to help others be built up. And that's, that's the key part there. Well, to me, all of this, you know, it all interconnects the the literacy and the language to me interconnects so well, because if if children can't express themselves, they're not going to be happy little people. And they're not going to develop cognitively the way we want them to. Mm -hmm. And so my goal in life, I mean, really is to help children to be able to express themselves. And I know once they can do that, everything else really falls into place. So I just want them to be able to do that. Yes. And, and y'all remember a speech generating device that has core vocab or and fringe vocab on it is not to replace their vocalized voice. No. It's to help them have a means of functional communication while their vocalized voice comes in. Um, and, yes. and, and, and Baron, I mean, you and I worked with some kids that will, I mean, they may never become vocally verbal, but they were still able to communicate because because of all that groundwork. Um, Also, my goodness, some of them are high schoolers now. How did that happen? (laughs) Oh, I have no idea. I'm Facebook friends with a lot of their moms. And yes, it's very it's very disturbing. But yeah, the the devices are not to replace speech. Certainly not. Mm -hmm. But I did find that those devices would help a child to participate who couldn't otherwise. Mm-hmm. And it also, I really found it helped, it encouraged them to participate. And even yep. if they were just making guttural sounds, they were saying something and, and they were felt a part of what was going on in the classroom. And I thought that was really important. So I did like using those devices for that purpose. Awesome. Okay. Well, um, we, we have hit um, just about everything um, and then some, but you know, that's what I had hoped for. So thank you. (laughs) Um, All right. So what I'm going to do is um, stick around. Um, We're going to switch over to some Q&A time and open the lineup so that if anybody has any questions, they can um, pick your brain. Um, And uh, can you just one more time, give us the name of your website and your Facebook page that way, folks, if they want to um, ask you specific um, like case questions, they can reach out to you that way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My, my um, Facebook page is training wills consulting. So just search training wills consulting and you'll find it. Um, it has my, my graphic, my um, little picture that's on there is three children riding bikes with training wheels. So you'll recognize it when you see it. <laughs> and then my website is www.trainingwheelsconsulting.com. And I, yeah, I would welcome questions, uh, like my Facebook page, communicate with me. I would love that. Absolutely. Okay, awesome. Thank you. All right, cool. Well, then I'm going to um, switch it over so that way folks can ask questions. So hang on one second while I make a switch. All right. All righty. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember... Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.